Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Gabapentin has evolved as a drug of abuse over the past few years. As a non-controlled substance, patients may obtain gabapentin for a host of off-label uses, most with limited to no evidence, rather easily. This study found that gabapentin use is associated with illicit opiate use and positive hepatitis C status. Illicit opiate misuse may encompass either single-substance opiate misuse or be part of a polysubstance misuse. Regression modeling found that there is twice the likelihood that these patients will request gabapentin doses that are equal to or exceed 1,800 milligrams per day. Common reasons for these requests may include complaints of either back pain or uncontrolled anxiety. High-dose gabapentin use is also found in opiate replacement therapy patients. Mean daily gabapentin doses in these patients were even higher than those with opiate misuse. These findings are applicable to daily practice scenarios in which patients request gabapentin for treatment of nebulous symptoms. It may be possible that such patients are using gabapentin for an additive effect with illicit opiate analgesics. Another possibility is that the patient may be receiving opiate replacement therapy from one practice and requesting gabapentin at a second practice. In either scenario, physicians should be alert to requests for escalating doses of gabapentin. In these cases, further investigation of substance use disorder status and hepatitis C status should be performed. It is well known that taking certain medications for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, especially atypical antipsychotics, can cause long-term side effects such as high blood pressure with increased risk of heart and blood vessel disease. But very little information is available about how these drugs affect blood pressure in the short term. Some patients recently started on these medications have had severe high or low fluctuations in their blood pressure, leading to side effects such as dizziness, confusion, and fainting. This study explored how initiation of these antipsychotic medications might affect blood pressure in patients admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Results show that olanzapine and risperidone significantly increased patients' systolic blood pressure in the first 72 hours, while clozapine decreased it. Certain people had more pronounced effects on their blood pressure than others, possibly because of their age, genetics, or other medications that they were taking. The authors recommend that patients recently started on antipsychotic medications be closely monitored for changes in blood pressure and adverse effects. This study received financial support from Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, through their academic research mentorship program. How common is it for patients with pharmacologically treated depression to not receive adequate doses of antidepressant medications? Is treatment-resistant depression incidence overestimated in database studies that do not take account of dose? The authors of this study created a protocol to address these questions using open-source tools developed within the Observational Health Data Sciences and Informatics Collaborative. 
This study was based on data from three U.S. health services databases. The authors created pharmacologically treated depression cohorts and defined an antidepressant medication era as a sequence of dispensing with greater than or equal to 30 days between the end of the day's supply of each dispensing and the start of the next. Antidepressant medication errors were classified according to whether they had greater than or equal to one dispensing at greater than or equal to the minimum therapeutic dose. The authors found that at least one-third of initial antidepressant regimens are stopped or changed without reaching the minimum effective dose. They suggest that if an antidepressant regimen is ineffective and not limited by factors such as adverse effects, clinicians should consider whether the dose is adequate before switching to a different medication. Janssen Research and Development provided support in the form of salaries for all authors. Do you screen for sleep disorders in patients with psychiatric conditions? Symptom overlap can mean that sleep disorders such as obstructive sleep apnea are overlooked in patients with PTSD and mood disorders. The authors of this issue's continuing medical education offering examine the correlations between obstructive sleep apnea and psychiatric disorders such as major depressive disorder, PTSD, or bipolar disorder, and whether comorbid psychiatric diagnosis increases the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. The study showed a high prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea in psychiatric patients, particularly in those with PTSD and major depressive disorder, and less so in those with bipolar disorder. There was a statistically significant increase in the incidence of obstructive sleep apnea in male veterans with either bipolar disorder or comorbid PTSD or major depressive disorder with comorbid PTSD. This study highlights the importance of screening patients with severe psychiatric disorders for sleep apnea, particularly those with dual diagnoses of mood disorders and PTSD. Suicide is a clinical problem of enormous importance, especially among the veteran population. The association between childhood abuse and suicide risk in veterans is unknown. Given the substantial rate of childhood abuse in the veteran population and the high rate of veteran suicide, the objective of this study was to examine whether childhood physical and sexual abuse is a significant predictor of suicide risk in veterans. This study was a retrospective chart review of 4,709 patients admitted to a psychiatric ward at a Veterans Affairs Medical Center. Sociodemographic and clinical data and history of childhood physical and sexual abuse were obtained from the patient's electronic health records. Suicide risk data of patients who attempted and completed suicide were also obtained. Results showed that childhood physical and sexual abuse number of psychiatric admissions, and major depressive disorder were the best predictors of increased suicide risk. Additional significant predictors were bipolar disorder and cocaine use disorder. Surprisingly, diagnosis of schizophrenia predicted a reduced risk. The results from this study may lead to more focused programs with equal emphasis on psychotropics and psychosocial interventions. 
Such holistic programs are likely to help people with a history of abuse and prevent suicide. This publication is the result of work supported with resources and use of facilities of the Atlanta Veterans Affairs Medical Center, including the Research, Mental Health, Rehabilitation Research Development Service Lines and the Center for Visual and Neurocognitive Rehabilitation. Additional infrastructure support was provided by the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences of the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Catatonia is a major dysregulation syndrome often accompanied by deep vein thrombosis or DVT and pulmonary embolism. Although electroconvulsive therapy or ECT is effective for catatonia, it is unknown whether it could increase the risk of pulmonary embolism in patients with DVT. The authors of this article present a case series of five catatonia patients who received ECT after DVT. All five patients had received anticoagulation therapy. Three patients with distal DVT did not develop pulmonary embolism during ECT sessions. One patient with proximal DVT also did not develop pulmonary embolism. However, one patient with proximal DVT presented with pulmonary embolism one day after the second ECT session. Based on these findings, the authors suggest that anticoagulation therapy should be continued until a proximal DVT disappears before safely initiating ECT. In other words, ECT for patients with a DVT might be possible after the absence or disappearance of a proximal DVT is confirmed. Although further studies with large numbers of patients are warranted, this case series suggests that ECT could be considered a safe treatment for individuals with distal DVT. Psychogenic movement disorders, or PMDs, are common and associated with significant psychosocial impairments. PMDs are also frequently comorbid with other physical and psychiatric conditions. However, treatment of PMDs has been largely unsuccessful. Recently, treatments focused on conditions comorbid with PMDs have been hypothesized as a possible improvement to PMD-focused treatments. This case report describes a patient initially diagnosed with a PMD and referred for psychotherapy after appointments with neurologic and psychiatric providers. After referral to psychotherapy, the patient received a diagnosis of comorbid obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, and treatment with exposure and response prevention, an evidence-based psychotherapy for OCD. The patient demonstrated reliable improvements in all self-report measures, as well as remission of PMD and OCD symptoms via behavioral observation at the end of therapy and at a one-month follow-up. This case presents initial support for the treatment of comorbid and overlapping conditions in patients with PMDs by providing a pilot demonstration to support future large investigations. The rate of suicidal ideation in youths is around 20%. Suicide attempts have reached 9%, and completed suicides account for almost 10% of all deaths among adolescents and young adults around the world, making suicide the third leading single cause of death in this population. 
In fact, in several countries, the rate of suicide in children has gradually increased since the turn of our century. And the decreasing age of onset of self-harm and increasingly lethal methods indicate the need for targeted interventions in key transition stages for young people. For these reasons, we've just released our newest curated collection, Unmasking Suicide in Youth. Dr. Philippe Corte, editor of the journal Clinical Psychiatry's Focus on Suicide Special Section, further elaborates in his pointed introduction on the need for readers to learn more about the high risk of suicide among our young people. At nearly 200 pages, the collection contains 16 articles from the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders and the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, and costs only $75. To find the collection, go to psychiatrist.com and enter the keyword suicide. You can also find it on our journal home pages. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive activities from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.